You drive up to the service station. You put the pump in the car and then you pull that trigger. The vibration of petrol filling up your car. It's a familiar feeling to many of us. But just how much longer will it last? This week on Download This Show, around the world, electric vehicles are gaining on their petrol counterparts. In fact, there are countries where EVs outnumber petrol cars. So we're dedicating the entire show to where exactly Australia is at on this issue. We have industry members here to put some claims to the test. And if you ever want to buy an electric car, what are the sorts of questions you should be asking? And then the big question, what is the future? There are now billions being poured into electric self-driving cars. And it's not been without some serious accidents. So, is it worth it? Let's dive in. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. And we've got two very special guests with us today. Bridie Schmidt, lead reporter with The Driven. Welcome to Download This Show. It's lovely to have you. Thank you, Mark. And where are you talking to us from today, by the way? I am talking to you from Sunny Lennox Head, which is in northern New South Wales. I'm incredibly jealous. That is something <laughs> Well, it's a bit muggy, so, you know, don't be completely jealous. <laughs> no, I'm stuck in a studio. I'm going to imagine it as sunny and bright and delightful because that is what I need to get through the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also joining us is Bayard Jafari, CEO of the Electric Vehicle Council. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me here. Hi, Bridie. And where are you joining us from? I'm from Sydney. I'm just equally as jealous as Bridie right now. I think this is going to be the Bridie Envy podcast for a moment here. <laughs> you know what? I, I can think of worse things to dedicate half an hour to. <laughs> All right. We are talking about electric vehicles and where Australia is at the moment. And I'd like to just get like a sense check from you, Bridie. Compared to the rest of the world, how are we doing? Oh, terribly. We've been labelled a laggard. We have something under 1% of our fleet is electric um, compared with countries overseas. Like, well, the, I mean, the leader is Norway, of course, which now has a 70% share of electric vehicles. And um, in Germany, they've hit 10%, 11%. So yeah, we're very far behind. Why is Norway so obviously ahead? What's what's motivating that? Well, they've had policy in place for uh, two or three decades now. So, you know, it's it's been something that they've been working at um, and, and they're now seeing the results of that. All right, Bayard, how, where do you feel Australia is going at the moment? Bridie said that we've been labelled a laggard. I'm the one that's been labelling us a laggard. <laughs> yeah. <you> know, <laughs> This is, I mean, the Electric Vehicle Council, we're an industry body that represents the sector, but we exist because of this issue, because Australia shouldn't be behind the rest of the world by such drastic lengths. The What we need to do is very obvious. The fact that we're so far behind the rest of the world tells us we can just do the things that they're doing and it'll work for us as well. Uh, our issue has been that while consumers want electric vehicles, the industry is sitting at the table ready to invest more it's government that's just been you know, holding things up by not putting any policies in place, not helping support the transition from the petrol and diesel vehicles that we've got on our roads to the electric vehicles of the future. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's um, more than that, too. I mean, there's been deliberate misinformation campaigns from certain parts of government. Um, you know, we, we heard our coalition MPs and, and the Prime Minister, um, you know, threatening that electric vehicles would ruin the weekend in the lead up to the 2019 election. Um, and I think that's done a lot of damage to their reputation in this country. What exactly are the policies that you're seeing overseas that would increase take up 
in Australia, Bridie? Oh, look, a really important one is the European Union, where they have um, legislation to reduce vehicle emissions. So if car makers don't reach um, under a certain amount of carbon dioxide emitted per kilometre across their average fleet sales, then they face big fines. And what do you reckon standing in the way of bringing that kind of legislation here? The government in Australia sort of looked at this very issue and what they found was, this is back when Josh Bidenberg was Energy Minister, what he found was that passing similar legislation here would save the country around $30.2 billion and that consumers would save around $500 at the petrol pump every year. He proposed to pass this, just like every other country around the world has, and it got labelled a carbon tax on cars by his own right flank and if it you know, sort of landed in a few newspapers' front pages for a few days and they ended up shelving it. So this is something that's officially you know, not cancelled. If you ask the government, they'll say we're still looking into it. The problem is they've been looking into it for four years and nothing's happened. In that particular glorious moment in politics, there was uh, a lot of criticism that came out that electric cars aren't equipped to deal with a country as vast and wide as Australia. People are going to be breaking down the middle of highways because they've run out of charge. I mean, what, I mean what's the reality of that? How, how true is some of that criticism? Look, I think um, at the moment, um, if you're travelling up the coast to uh, visit family or friends or go on holidays, a lot of people don't realise there is a lot of charging infrastructure rolling out. Um, so they're usually about 200 kilometres apart. Um, the average uh, electric vehicle has got more than 200 kilometres of driving range. Um, the other thing that people don't think about is the fact that they don't need that amount of range every day. The average commute is about 40 kilometres a day. Yeah, modern electric vehicles have far greater ranges than many people realise. You can go over 400 kilometres in them, use the facilities, recharge your vehicle and keep going. So you can go on longer trips if you want. But the other part of that issue is really it's more about sentiment than being realistic. People look at the size of our country and think, well, we must drive very long distances compared to places like Europe and the UK, whereas actually the opposite is true. Because you can get more places by going on a road trip in the UK or across Europe, people do that, whereas in Australia we fly those longer distances. People don't generally go for 20-hour drives, you know, just to get from town to town. They take a short drive to their airport and they get the rest of the way that way. Just from a consumer standpoint, the biggest thing standing mm-hmm. in the way of getting an electronic vehicle right now, I think for lots of people, is just simply that it's stunningly expensive compared to the average price of a car. Why is that the case? Like, Why has that price point remained so much higher? And is it likely to change? Oh, yeah, it's definitely going to change. The, the, the biggest reason for the um, higher price for electric vehicles at the moment is the cost of making the batteries. So they, they can account for up to 50% of the cost of the vehicle. Um, but that's going to come down. There's a lot of research out there um, that suggests that we'll reach price parity, which means that, you know, your average electric hatchback will cost as much as um, your average petrol hatchback within three or four years. Oh, wow. That's a lot sooner than I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Look, you know, it's it's part of the adoption curve. You know, the way we've seen um, smart TVs when they first came on the market, they were well outside the reach of most people. But that technology kind of penetrates into the market and then manufacturers can channel more resources into it. So you've got economies of scale as well into the mainstream market. Bayard, do you think that price point difference as it currently sits is is one of the reasons why there's been such low take up? And how important, I, I mean, obviously you are the voice of the industry, I guess, in this conversation. How important is it for you and the group that you represent to bring that price point in line with what the average petrol car costs? Look, there are really two things that we're looking at here. One is that if you compare like-for-like like cars, today the electric car costs about fifteen to $20,000 more because of that new technology component, that battery. 
And that's the exciting thing that's coming down. So by the middle of the decades, that'll reach parity. The other part of this conversation, particularly for Australia, though, isn't about electric vehicle technology. It's about the investments that we get in our market. Because if you go to the US, Europe, across Asia, you can get many electric vehicles that are priced between thirty dollars to $60,000. They have some you know, 30 to 40 models within that range. We have about four models available within that range. There's the concern of you know, car companies are making global investment decisions. They say, look, every other market will penalise us for not selling electric vehicles, and they'll give consumers tax breaks for buying electric vehicles sort of in the range of $10,000. You in Australia don't do that. So when we get particularly cheaper electric vehicles that we need a larger volume of sales for, well, you guys miss out and you know, we'll, we'll keep serving other markets and we'll get to you when we're good and ready. If we fast forward into that future where a lot more people have electronic vehicles or electric vehicles, let's not get the two confused. Um, Bridie, there's a whole industry of mechanics out there that have, you know, spent decades learning how petrol cars work. Out of curiosity, what happens to the mechanic in the on the corner of my street? Like, what do they retrain? I mean, because a lot of these cars, if you want to get things fixed, you have to go back to the manufacturer, at least at this stage. So, what happens to that whole sector of, of business? Yeah, look, it's 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 part of that whole transition um, conversation, isn't it? I know we have. Um, I'm, I'm sure that we'll still need mechanics for a while to come. Um, we're not going to see, you know, 100% electric vehicles in Australia for you know. A, a, couple of decades perhaps um, that depends on a lot of factors of course but um, there'll definitely be time for people to transition and retrain and there'll still be mechanics needed in certain industries I'm sure. Yeah mechanics are doing that work around understanding the retraining and reskilling now they're not waiting for governments to get off their backsides these are their jobs and their livelihoods and the reality for that sector is their jobs have changed dramatically over the years already. You know, Mm. if you imagine a 20-year-old car versus a car that you buy off the line today, they are very different beasts. You have to understand computers much more. You know, you're you're tinkering Mm. around a lot more with sort of software to tell you what's wrong with the car than getting in under it in a lot of cases. So for them, looking 20 years into the future and saying, well, how are cars changing again? They're adapting. Bridie, when somebody is looking at an electric vehicle right now, what are the sorts of things they should be looking for? First and foremost, how much, you know, how do they use their vehicles each day? Where are they going to park them? The reality is that um, cars are parked for 90% of the time. So if you're going to drive 20 kilometres to work, you know, maybe you could have a conversation with your um, employer about plugging in your car during the day. There's the difference between short range and long-range vehicles so you know do you want something that's a little bit more affordable and has maybe between 200 and 300 kilometers of range or are you going to be looking at something a bit more expensive that's got that extra long range depending on if you need it for your job or your daily duties out of curiosity, what, what is the difference between a short range and a long range? Like how do they make one long range and one short range? Well, it's battery size basically. And so that's where the difference in price comes from as well. So when somebody embarks on that purchase choice, Bayard, what, mm. what would be your first advice to them? I mean, one is be a bit honest with yourself because I think when you start looking at an electric mm. car and you hear about range, you'd think I must need a thousand kilometres, you know, and that's more than your current car does, but that's just what you imagine. The thing that I'll guarantee you is once you get the car, you're going to be charging it a lot less often than you thought you would and you're going to be driving Mm. a lot less often than you thought you would because you always overestimate these things. Mm. As Bridie said, your car actually sits sits there doing nothing. Data is about 96% of the time. So if you're wondering when am I going to charge it, well, your car's sitting there doing nothing close to electricity 96% of the time. That's when you're going to charge it. It's funny, like there is a car park at the back of one of the places where I work and I've, I've driven past a charging spot and I've been like, oh, 
I didn't know that was there. And I, I sort of took note of it because I, I remember thinking like that was the first time I'd kind of considered the practicalities of an electric yeah. vehicle. And I think when people see those charging ports around, I think it raises, I guess, like the plausibility of having one in their life. How important is spreading charging ports, Bayard, to, to growing that particular category of car? Well, it's important for two reasons. The first one is exactly what you said, it's the sentiment. So not really about how much you're actually going to need them, but when people want to buy an electric vehicle, they think to themselves, have I seen those charging ports around? Am I going to be comfortable? Am I going to be okay? Mm-hmm. We make the joke that you know this range anxiety that people talk about is something that's felt by people who don't own electric vehicles, because once you own one, you never think about it again and you're fine. That other important point, though, is really about the convenience you get out of electric vehicles. You know, today we think about, well, where's the petrol station for electric vehicles? Where do I drive? And the reality is anywhere there's electricity is where you're going to charge your car. So whether it's at home or at work or the shopping centre or the movie theatre or your cafe, you know, there's already electricity there. All you need to do is put the plug at the end of it and that's where you can be charged. I actually remember reading about the uh, first guy that imported an electric car to Norway. And I think he is um, involved with their electric vehicle association. But the story went that he actually ran uh, an extension cord out of his office window (laughs) so that he could charge his car. (laughs) Really? I love that idea. I've asked you advice for people um, when they are looking. Just to invert that a little bit, Bridie, when people are looking at an electric vehicle or tossing up that choice, what do you reckon the biggest mistakes people make are? Or certainly maybe perhaps some of the biggest misconceptions they have. Oh, look, I think, again, that comes back to the driving range, you know. If, if you, um, assuming that you need more driving range than you maybe really need is, is one of the mistakes. And another mistake is assuming that your electric vehicle is going to be underpowered. Um, there's this conception that they, they don't go far, they don't have much power. In fact, the very opposite is true in terms of power. They've got this instant torque, which means that they can take off at the traffic light with, you know, without that need to speed up that petrol and diesel cars have. This is a slightly left field question, Payard, but uh, that's slightly outside electric vehicles. But I have a a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and I've been looking at the proliferation of things like self-driving cars, and we've been talking about on the show over the years. And I'm curious, looking ahead, am I ever going to have to teach my kids how to drive? Or by the time they hit that age, will self-driving cars be mature enough that I don't actually have to put myself and them through that pain? Yeah, look, I mean, I guess the answer is hopefully not, right? It, and and if you do, I would imagine they'd be the last generation people of people who you do. The real sticking mm. point of self-driving, again, isn't about the technology. It's about how quickly governments get on with the regulation to help us actually put these things on the road. The reality is that self-driving cars, even as far as we've gone with the technology today, are far, far safer than dumb human beings driving cars. And the things that we're working on now with self-driving cars is how to make them, you know, an order of a thousand times safer because people realise that the first time a computer gets into an accident is going to be sort of dealt with much more harshly than the thousand times that a human being gets into an accident. So I would say they're already safer than human beings. I mean, that's an interesting one, though, because I think there's a different perception when a human has an accident because I think humans understand the components that go into that. Were they paying attention? Were they inebriated? I think people understand what goes on when a human mm. has an accident. I think the, there's a very different kind of fear and mistrust behind when a computer has an accident. I mean, how do you deal with that particular psychological transaction? Look, I mean, one part of it is just recognising the history of these things. Because if you look back at the conversations that were being heard, had about elevators, it was very similar. Airplanes, same thing again. 
you know, every time something new happens with technology, people get worried about, you know, is this Skynet, is it going to take over? How is it going to work? It's not enough for this thing to be 10 times safer than a human being or 100 times safer than a human being. It needs to be a thousand times safer than a human being, because we do know that each instance of an accident or an incident is going to be scrutinized much more heavily because it's a computer, not a human that we can, you know, or put the finger out and blame and hold accountable. So we need to make that so absolutely rare that we all eventually over time recognize, well, look, the trade-off is worth it because we can start to look at the 999 accidents that didn't happen thanks to these computers mm. as opposed to the one that did. Look, I think I think there's, to an extent, it's people seeing it in action. Um, so we've already seen Tesla rolling out their full self-driving beta software to um, a number of um, Tesla owners in San Francisco and they're posting lots of videos on YouTube. Anyone could go on there and watch them and you can actually see them documenting the improvements in that software as it rolls out. And, you know, one thing that Tesla's point is that um, because they're um, collecting all the data from their cars, um, they're actually collecting millions more data points on edge cases, on unusual things that happen that typically aren't um, created in simulatory environments. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, that getting that technology in front of people and getting them used to it and seeing it happen and seeing it work is what's going to make the difference. Download this show is what you're listening to. This is a special episode about the future of cars, electric vehicles, self-driving vehicles. Our guest this week, uh, Bayad Jafari, the CEO of the Electric Vehicle Council and the lead reporter for The Driven. Bridie Schmidt, Mark Fennell is my name. And you did mention there, Bridie, uh, Tesla. It's sort of like the elephant in the room when we talk about electric yeah. vehicles. But mm. what are the other ones? Like, are there, there are a range of these different car companies around that are doing interesting things. What are the other ones that you think you know, whether they're in Australia or not, are doing particularly interesting things mm. in this category. Yeah, look, there's heaps of car makers now getting on board and I think um, South Korean car makers and European car makers have really got their foots forward. We're starting to see US car makers come in with some stuff as well. Um, I think what we're going to see that will be really interesting in Australia this year is uh, Hyundai's new Ionic 5, which is going to be their first um, electric car that's built on an electric-only platform. Um, so we've already got the Kona and the Ionic hatchback here, but um, they're both built on... Um, um, platforms that also incorporate other drivetrains. When you say um, other drivetrains, do you mean like yeah. you can also drive it with petrol? Yeah, so the Kona is originally a petrol car, so oh, you can okay. buy a Kona with a petrol engine, so that's the petrol drivetrain. Um, but you can also get an electric Kona. And the Ionic is available as a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid and an all-electric. Yeah, so, I mean, a hybrid, we're, we're starting to see a lot more hybrids um, bought in Australia. And But the difference between a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid and a plug-in all-electric is that you can't plug the hybrid in. So you inevitably have to use petrol to drive it. Um, it does use less petrol because of the b battery that it's got. Um, the plug-in hybrid um, has a battery and a petrol tank but you can also plug it in. And they typically have between 50 kilometres and 80 or 90 kilometres range, depending on the model. Um, if you're just driving that around the suburbs to pick the kids up from school or drive it to work, a lot of the time you can actually drive that on all electric, um, but you do have to keep it charged up. Whereas obviously the all electric is, there's no petrol, no, no emissions. It's, yeah. 
That's a really interesting point, Bridie. Um, if you are looking for a hybrid at the moment, right, and your primary motivating factor is, I don't want to pay for petrol. So like literally every taxi driver, right? If your primary motivating factor is that, when you're looking to buy one, is there something you can look for that will tell you, in effect, the, the efficiency, like how much battery you will get for X amount of petrol that you put in it? Is there some sort of number you should be looking for in the specs? Um, so, yeah, that, that's a little bit of a contentious issue just because we have um, some outdated rules in Australia that need to be updated. We have what's called the, uh, the NEDC rating, which is what informs our energy or fuel consumption, and it typically overstates range. Um, it, it's more useful as a comparative measure between different vehicles. Yeah, so basically when you're going to buy a car on the sticker, it'll tell you uh, how many litres it'll take for you to travel 100 kilometres with that car, which is a sort of measure of its efficiency for petrol. How we come up with those numbers is through lab tests, and those Mm. lab tests aren't going to reflect what you're actually doing when you're driving on the road, right? A, A lab's different to the road. And in fact, in Australia, the lab tests standard that we use is outdated for everyone. Mm. Everybody else has moved to a single harmonised, sort of more precise lab test. So more precise, not exact, is the word there. And ours is a, you know, we try to we try to remember what NEDC stands for. The uh, the colloquial term for it is not even damn close. Because <laughs> it, it does a pretty terrible. That's job. right. <laughs> that's why I can't remember it because that's what comes into my head. <laughs> you can only remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's, but this is the thing, like if people are considering buying, it's, it's good to know that stuff. Are there other things in that, Mm. in that vein that you, that you think people should know? Because it's such a new category, right? So for most people who Mm. are buying electric vehicle, electric vehicle rather, it will Mm. be the first time they've bought one of this kind. Whereas if you buy a petrol car, you know, by the time you you reach your sort of thirties and forties, right, you've probably owned or driven another car of that kind before. So I think the purchase decision is quite new and the, the variables you want to consider are different. The way I think about it is like, I just want to know when I walk into a dealer, what sort of things I should be looking for. Because most, and to be honest with you, I'm like this when I walk into like, look at a petrol car, I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking for. Because I'm a novice. I drive a car to drop my kids yeah. to school. So those are the sort of things I'm, I'm thinking about. Is there stuff in that vein that you kind of think people should just like keep an eye out for, I guess? I, I think, I think um, in the case of walking into a dealership, um, make sure that you're talking to a dealer who knows what they're talking about. Because I think that there's still a bit of education that needs to be done along those lines. Um, probably it's a good idea for drivers who are thinking about buying electric cars to delve into um, forums and Facebook groups. There's some really passionate people in Australia. There's the Australian Electric Vehicle Association. There's um, a Facebook group called Electric Vehicles for Australia and they really welcome people to come and ask questions and and find out about the technology um, so that you can actually walk into a dealership without having to ask questions. Mm. Bayard, anything anything stand out to you in that vein of just arming people walking into a dealership? Yeah, I think the key is what people are used to is whether looking online or walking into a dealership is looking at that sticker price of the vehicle. And today, because of everything we've discussed, the sticker price for electric vehicles is higher. And that's usually the biggest thing that informs whether or not we buy the car. Whereas what's worth mm. remembering now is once you then own an electric vehicle, it's far, far cheaper for you to run. The maintenance is... You know, quite a lot less. You, you'll be going a year without needing to take it in for a service. There's no oil changes. There's no sort of regular things needed to change there. But then the fuel cost is dramatically cheaper. It's a, if you've got things like solar panels on your roof, you're bringing your fuel cost down to zero. But 
on average, we're talking about paying something like 20 to 30 cents for the equivalent of a litre of petrol. So you're you know, saving yourself a good $1.20 you know, per litre, essentially, there. Mm. So mm. if you stretch that out over how much you drive over a year or over the many years that you're going to have that vehicle, you're going to make a few thousand dollars back. So it's worth remembering that the technology does work differently in that way. You're no longer paying for petrol. You're sort of freeing yourself of the Bowser. Uh, and so make sure you can sort of take those costs into consideration. Out of curiosity, if something does go wrong, though, on average, is it more expensive than just going up to, you know, get a petrol car fixed at the uh, mechanic? No, I'd say, uh, like, for general things, we're talking cheaper because there's so many fewer moving parts inside of the vehicle, mm. right? So there's less things there possible to go wrong, particularly, you know, if we're buying a new an electric car today, we're generally talking about buying a new car, so you've got a good long warranty in it. The battery that concerns most people, you actually get much longer uh, warranties on. You get about an eight-year warranty on the battery. And that's really there for manufacturers to tell you, look, we're comfortable with these things. They last. They're okay. You don't need to worry about them anymore. Yeah, no. I mean, we, we know that they need a lot less maintenance. That's that's just a no-brainer because it's got like 40 parts compared to something like 400 parts in a petrol car. Um, and an, another thing that people don't really think about is that a lot of the energy that's lost through a petrol car is through vibration of the combustion engine, you know, the pistons going back and forth, all of that. Um, so there's a lot of energy lost through heat, but the other offset of that is that the vibration of the engine, it wears parts down on your petrol or your diesel car, whereas um, the electric motor, there's no vibration like that. So not only is it nicer to drive, but it has a lot less wear and tear on your vehicle as a whole. There are innovations in electric vehicles that aren't necessarily the vehicle itself. There's all kinds of things being done around the world, like, you know, putting solar panels on roads to electrify roads of the various different, and it's a wild world of innovations. I feel like every other day there's like a, a startup that sends out a press release about something. Of the, all those innovations that are happening, what is the one that most excites you, Brody? Is the one where you saw went, ah, oh, that's cool. Is there something that stands out? I kind of really like the idea of electric VTOLs. I'm not sure if you know what that stands for. It stands for vertical takeoff and landing. So <laughs> the short name is eVTOL. Um, and they're basically, um, they're sometimes referred to as air taxis. Uh, and they're basically like really big drones that you can fit people in. And, and eventually they may become autonomous as well. But at the moment, um, there's lots of work being done on making these air taxis for the urban environment. So if you can imagine, you might, instead of um, hitting peak hour, you might jump in an air taxi and, and catch it from one tall building to the next. And I mean, the most recent thing that I've seen come out about that is uh, the UK government is actually partnering with Hyundai and another um, and like a port, a taxi port company, and they're going to make one of these air taxi ports in Coventry in England. Literally Blade Runner, right? Like that's that's what I'm visualising. <laughs> it's getting up there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> didn't, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but didn't Uber do a deal with like the city of Melbourne to, to test stuff like this a couple of years ago? Yeah, Melbourne was going to be one of the um, trial cities for Uber Elevate, um, and but I'm not sure what's happened there, if it was maybe put on hold because of COVID, but yeah, that is 
We haven't heard anything else come out about that in recent times. Yeah, Uber are very good about sending out press releases when literally anything happens. And then you check back in a year later and go, whatever happened I've emailed them and they're not getting back, so I need to, yeah, follow that up again. (laughs) Yeah, Behard, in in terms of innovations that are happening uh, outside of the cars themselves, is there anything that stands out to you? Yeah, a relatively simple one, but it's moving from what, you know, we spoke a lot about plugs and where you plug your car in today Mm. towards just wireless charging of vehicles and yeah, there's a very obvious convenience there if you just drive up to a pad and it starts charging and off you go. But particularly if we think about the rest of the journey that we're taking towards driverless cars, the more that we sort of remove the need for some human input to say, all right, it's here now, somebody go plug it in, the more the car can just park somewhere in charge or even be driving on a road and be charging while it's driving on that road. We've really gotten into a future where, you know, Mm. vehicles and transport serves us rather than us needing to sort of get behind something, drive it, get to where we're going. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Bridie Schmidt, lead reporter with the electric vehicle website, The Driven. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. And Bayard Jafari, CEO of the Electric Vehicle Council. Thanks so much for being on the show. It was great to be here, Mark. Thanks. And as always, my name's Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to a very special episode of Download This Show. Download This Show.